and sharing and talking about restoration and, and then the, the music. Look what the Lord has done and Brother Gabe and Brother Asher talking about um, the opportunity dressed like overalls. <laughs> Amen. You know, I, I think of the passage so familiar to all of us in uh, Romans 12. And one phrase in it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that tells us that the greatest blockage to transformation is between our ears. That tells us that in our daily lives, our thought patterns, the labyrinth of our thinking is the most likely place where the opportunity will die, where the miracle will stall. It's as if there is a, a power that is present, active, and able, but our old thinking is somehow stopping it. I don't know where the Greek word for renew comes from. I haven't looked it up. But it has often struck me, and I've shared in the past, that the English word for renew just means to get back to what was new. It's ironic that it's a little bit of a funny etymology because new typically points to the future. But renew points to the past and yet to newness. Amen. It's kind of what you were getting at when you said restoration indicates something that was lost. When you say that you want to have something new, you're saying, I want something that I've never had before. But when you say, I want something to be renewed, you're saying, I want to get back to the newness I once felt and have now lost. And that's a theme throughout the Bible, that people are getting back to newness. <laughs> I think my dad did a, a little tract on worship back in the East 14th Street days, or at least Paramus days, and it, it said, the oldest worship on earth is brand new. We're, we're getting to something real new, like what David felt when he danced before the ark. Hallelujah. It's what the book of Revelations is talking about when it describes the church who had so many things going for it but had lost its first love. When God begins to speak to us, when He begins to frame our universe by His Word, something incredibly new starts happening. Like the newness of the skin that covered Naaman after he obeyed. Amen? As, as new as the day he was born, the Bible says. Amen? Something new starts coming into your thinking, starts coming into your circumstance, your possibility, your plausibility structures. Something is happening. But you lose it. You lose it over time. You, you can't remember quite what you were feeling. How many of us have had the experience of hearing ourselves on a tape or reading a journal entry that we wrote from 10 years ago or a card that we sent somebody and going something like this, oh my goodness, God was speaking that to me already back then? Come on, don't lie. You know it's happened to you. And there's this astonishment that I thought this was a, a more recent occurrence. 
because we don't want to face how long it's taking us to obey. Amen. I can't believe God was speaking that to me back then. Or maybe it's something even a little different. We, we read something or remember something or somebody tells us, reminds us of something we did or said and we say, oh, I said that? Wow, that was powerful. <laughs> and it can be conceded, but not necessarily. You're, you're taken back that there was a moment of inspiration. There was an opportunity, Brother Asher, that you had but that you lost. And the Bible speaks of the word of God as coming with potential. It speaks of putting that word into practice, Jesus did. In the days of Samuel, it frames the introduction of the prophet by saying that in that day there was no widespread word of God in Israel. And then it says, but when Samuel came on the scene, not a word that he spoke fell to the ground. Now, we can give a metaphor of the word as a seed, and that's a good thing when that word falls into the ground, right? But he's talking about a word that could have fallen into a heart instead fell into the ground, and that's a bad thing. Not a word that he spoke fell into the ground. If you look around and you are still able to marvel at what God has done, look at what the Lord has done. It is because there were people who were not willing to let those words fall into the ground. Sometimes they were coming like balls that you had to juggle to keep in the air, but there was a people who didn't let them fall to the ground. That's mine. That's my opportunity. That's my answer. I was watching my 18-month-old daughter. I even caught her on a little bit of cell phone video, but I was watching her trying to catch bubbles. And everybody knows it. It's a cliche, but... Every kid does it. There's something so enthralling about that colorful, changing orb dancing on the breeze. And I mean, even the dogs start doing it. Of course, they bite them, you know. And there are some Christians who are like that too. I don't believe that. <laughs> but I was watching my daughter, and she's, she's just, I mean, mesmerized by it. She's so enthralled. She's so transparent to her desire to transcend and to experience something that seems just out of reach. Amen. But God's word is not a bubble. It's a promise. It's a miracle floating in the air. Let it sink deep into your ears and change you. Thank you, Jesus. It's an answer. It's new life. It's new birth. It's grace. It's power. It's the difference between who you are and who you want to be. If we could change the way we hear, if we could change the way we respond, we would be transformed. It's just this old mind. We got to get it back to new. Thank you, Jesus. How do I get my mind back to new? What made it old, God? Was it that you made promises that you didn't keep? Amen. Or was it that the world made promises that I convinced myself were you and they failed and I blamed you? 
What brought this cynicism? What brought this doubt? What made me indifferent to see the words floating and dropping and popping on the ground? The Bible says that His Word which goes forth from His mouth will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Amen. If God gives us a word today, a word of promise and change, that word is going to accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. But see, those who subscribe to the Reformed theology, they think that God's word He desires to help you with his word so you can't help but be helped. And I know that's silly to normal thinking people, but that's not how God's word works in our lives. We can neglect so great of salvation. We can drift away from our confidence. We can hear him weeping on the Mount of Olives, saying how often I would have, but you weren't willing. We can hear that the power of God was present to heal and learn that the crowd that it was present to heal were a bunch of Pharisees, that grace was there for them, and they didn't get it. We can read that they did not understand about the loaves and the fishes. We can read that they did not understand the resurrection or the promises pointing toward it because their hearts were slow to believe all that the scriptures had said. That word will accomplish it, but it may not accomplish it in me. It may not accomplish it in you. But it will accomplish it in someone, somewhere, somehow. God's word is searching. It's knocking on a heart saying, are you the one? And it's our task to be the one, to become that one who can reach out and lay hold of the promise of God. You know, we look at a project like we've just come through, and you remember the meeting where we were all gathered here, and the Lord began to speak to us that we could do the impossible and do not say it's impossible. Do you all remember that meeting? And we doubled down, you know, It was very impossible before that meeting. And it did not seem very hopeful. (laughs) I told the guys that I felt physically sick to my stomach the day before that meeting upon hearing their prognostications of what was possible. And I want to be fair. They were accurate. They were not blowing smoke. They were not throwing me off. They were telling the truth. (laughs) It was impossible. And I don't believe that the power would have come in and been installed five weeks ahead of schedule. I believe that it would have been impossible as long as we were approaching it strictly from the mindset of the calculus of unbelief or merely the calculus of what's naturally feasible. I don't believe that it was possible and we doubted it. I believed it was impossible. Do you understand? I believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says, with, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Amen. 
It is impossible to please God. And what Jesus was saying when he said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, it's not like we psych ourselves up and, and, and believe the unbelievable because it needs to be done. God has to speak something to us. And if we believe that it is God, then something changes in the calculus. A new element is entered into the equation and suddenly we're, we're standing before a rock believing that water is somehow captured inside that. And before, it wasn't like there was water. Had we walked up to the same rock, like, I don't think there's water here, but Aaron says there might be poke. No water would have come. You see what I'm saying? We could live our whole lives proving our impossibilities. All you got to do is nothing. I'm telling you right now, these brothers who were responsible and were giving an accurate portrayal of events, they can tell you, as Brother Zane told me, apart from the Word of God, this wasn't possible. <laughs> and we could be standing here right now saying, see, I told you so. There's not a promise that we are living in. The possibility of community, the possibility of homeschooling, the possibility of home birth, the possibility of body ministry without chaos and craziness. There's not any of these miracles that couldn't have ended with somebody saying, see, I told you so, it's impossible. Do you get what I'm saying? So when you say that, when you say that, when you invest in your unbelief and then sure enough your unbelief proves true, it doesn't actually mean squat diddle. It doesn't. Because when God begins to speak, He's not merely announcing or revealing the equations that are. He's creating new equations that never were. And only your belief can accommodate that new possibility. His word is a revelation, but it's not just a revelation. It's a creation. It's an implantation. It's a miracle in the works. You know, there's a disease that plagues vulnerable people all over the world. And in centuries past, it was next to non-existent. And you can tell me that this disease or these diseases um, are demon possession, and I don't deny that demons can sometimes be involved, but I don't actually believe that that can sufficiently encapsulate the totality of this condition. It's a real condition. Um, and this disease kills people. There are, there are families in this church who have family members outside the church who have died because of this condition. And what is the condition that I'm talking about? My sister or Brother Mark can correct me, but it's bulimia or anorexia, different versions of the same ailment, I suppose. Correct? And what is this? Somebody said, well, it's a demon possession. Well, not so fast. What this is is a 
terrifying revelation of the power of your thinking. A terrifying revelation of the power of your self-deception. What this condition basically amounts to, and this is suffered by intelligent, good-hearted people. It would be wrong for you to put too much distance between yourself and the afflicted. What this condition amounts to is someone looks in the mirror and is not fat. But in the mirror, they believe they are fat. Most of us, thankfully, suffer the opposite condition. We look in the mirror and empty our body of all oxygen. And the absence of oxygen equates to the absence of fat, somehow. <clears throat> but in reality, they're not fat. They're not overweight. They're not obese. But they look in the mirror and they see fat. And so they set about to correct a non-existent condition. Do you understand? Some of the most deadly diseases in the human ailment are overcorrection or the immune system getting misdirected to fix a problem that's not a problem. So just like the immune system can attack various parts of your spinal cord or hurt various aspects of your body in immunodeficient diseases or immunocompromised conditions, in the same way the mind can be turned against yourself or turned against reality or turned against God's promise. And this is so powerful that it, it overcomes your existential experience, your eyesight, one of your five senses, and perhaps, you know, two of them, and if you hear others, maybe three of them, okay, I'll stop there. Um, but it overcomes these three senses. And it sets you on this obsession to solve a problem that doesn't exist. I believe that Christians are plagued by spiritual bulimia. I believe it is the devil's business to get you exhausting yourself solving the problem that is not your problem. And completely neglecting the problem that is your problem. Think about this, guys. We can say to ourselves, well, they're crazy. And I will tell you, and experts will tell you, you're wrong. They're not crazy. They're intelligent, often sensitive people. You could say, well, they're demon-possessed. And I don't deny demon involvement. But that's not what this is. This is an insight into the terrifying power of self-deception. This is an insight into how your mind can be made into an engine that eats you alive. So to talk about renewing your mind may very well be a discussion of escaping death by a confused, deceived, misdirected mind.
what is the hope of somebody in this condition? What, what can be done? What can they do? Do you, do you just get them a mirror? They've already got that. Do you get them a tape measure? They've already got that. What can be done? The, the first thing that's got to be done is that they've got to come to an acknowledgement that my perception is lying to me. And they've got to come to a risky trust in the perception of someone outside and say, the evidence allows me to withdraw blind confidence in my own viewpoint and to tentatively extend it to someone who I think loves me. I don't think there's redemption except if you start to trust others the way you have hitherto trusted yourself. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I think this spiritual deception, obviously bulimia is a, is, it's a negative condition, and when I use it even as a spiritual, I mean it that way. But, you know, this deception is even at work in Peter's life on the positive, as we've talked about, you know, when he tells the Lord he won't deny it. And the Lord is living outside the bubble of Peter's deception. And the Lord can see, you're crazy. You're going to deny me. It's not like I'm going to make this happen or this is in the cards. This is like what you do all the time. This is you. This is as predictable as the sun rising in the morning. You're going to do this. The, the, the antecedent for Peter's failure was not powerlessness as much, it was that, but it was not powerless as much as it was strength and certainty in his own perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? And it is that that was the vulnerability. It, it was the louder he protested and the more adamant he was, the more convinced the Lord was that this is hopeless. This is hopeless because this is a man who leans on his own understanding. And there is a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is as predictable as the rising and the setting of the sun. It's always going to end in death. Had there been the smallest bit of question, not an appearance of question to humor Jesus, but a sincere, well, Lord, that scares me because I didn't think, but amen, whatever... Had there been any willingness to entertain the partiality of his own self-evaluation, the certainty would have become less certain. You see what I'm saying? It wasn't just a prediction. I remember one of my uh, family members was not as, a, as attentive a driver as my dad felt the dangers of the road warranted. And on one occasion, on a couple occasions, he challenged his proclivity toward distraction. And I wasn't there, but so the histories tell. And I think that there was a couple of those challenges that got more focused with time. And on the last one, he was actually driving down the road and he said, I prophesy to you that you're going to get in a car wreck. And I think he gave him a timetable. But I know he, he gave him 
It may have been within a year, but he said, I prophesy to you that you're going to be in a car wreck. Well, lo and behold, he's in a car wreck, nearly killed himself. Within two weeks. Amen. And I remember my family member standing in the living room and this incredible, I was a kid, but this, I hope that's not too revealing, but um, (laughs) this incredible spirit of revelation was in the room. And dad wasn't doing any persuading. It was all done. It was fixed. And where did that prophecy come from? Well, I, I believe that that was inspired by God. But I don't believe that was an insight into the inevitable. I believe that was an accurate appraisal of the course that always ends in the inevitable. Do you, do you understand? It's like it wasn't uh, uh, opening the window of fate and saying, try as you might, you're not going to be able to avoid the car wreck that's coming. That's not what it was. It was saying, this path leads to destruction, and you stubbornly stick to this path. This is where it's going to end up. But it's the same, it's the same condition. It's this spiritual deception. And I I think it's more often to see the deception when it's these sort of areas. Confidence like Peter. um, Confidence in our driving. Confidence in whatever area. I think it's more likely to see deceptions that way. But it can also be this spiritual bulimia. Where we're we're going after and we're, we're solving this problem that is entirely a figment of our imagination. But we can die in the process. Is Brother Mark here? Brother Mark, raise your hand if you're here. There you are. Can people die as a complication of bulimia and anorexia? Yeah. He said, absolutely. You can die. Those who spent time in the emergency room, you can talk to us about people coming in whose whose fingernails are rotting off and, and whose whole system is failing because of this this deception, this lie. You're fighting this battle, but that's not your battle. That's not your battle. Amen. And there, there is a battle that must be fought. There is a battle that must be won because you're dying. You're on the road that ends in the wrong place, but you won't stop fighting what you have decided is your condition. And it's going to kill you. Amen. You see, the human mind is a, is a powerful thing, and whenever it runs into a heartache or a loss or an impossibility, it creates a narrative to make sense out of the world. And it will subconsciously preclude data that conflicts with that narrative that it has adopted. This is called confirmation bias. We have concluded, we have found, we have made sense. And why do we need to make sense out of our life? Because we don't have peace or we don't have certainty until we've made sense of it. We're afraid it's going to blindside us again. If we can't understand how it happened and tell some story to ourselves as to why it was, then we're vulnerable still. It's lurking behind the corner. It's going to jump on our back. And so we create these narratives. And a narrative is a powerful thing. And if the narrative is of God, it will bring meaning. And in meaning, it will bring peace. Peace will 
lead to trust and growth and flourishing. I've helped people who've gone through great affliction and I've gone through it myself. And the way the mind works to ask why, why did this happen? That's the question that hits you a thousand times more than everything else. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? But why my baby? But why at this time? But so-and-so had the same condition and it didn't happen. Why, 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 why? A young person dies and we ask why. Somebody gets cancer and we ask why, 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 why? And even if the answer is terrifying or bad or whatever, at least we have an answer and we've started to bring the world slightly back under a perceived standard of predictability. We get it. We fail with our children and we ask ourselves why? Or maybe we didn't fail, they just grew up and rebel against us and, and we're heartbroken and we're in pain and we're wondering why? Why did this happen? And so our brains are, are just searching, are just hitting the walls of the prison of this impossibility, saying, why, 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 why? And then all of a sudden, this notion insinuates itself. And then all of a sudden, that notion connects to another, and then another, and another, and another. And when you connect it all, and you can see coming and going, you've got a story arc. You've got the why. You've got the narrative. And you know what happened and how to keep it from happening again. It's a very, very, very powerful thing. Especially when it's a complete delusion. And then you will spend your entire life avoiding the why that you identified. Do you understand? I mean, that's what the bulimic person is doing. They're avoiding the food that have made them fat. But the fat, the, the, the obesity is not the problem. It's a lack of acceptance. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of belief or experience of love that is the real problem. And the obesity has been identified as the reason why I'm not accepted. Do you get it? And so it's like, I got it. I got it. I saw the way they spoke and bullied that person on the schoolyard. And I once did it too. And I see the little remarks. That's why they don't like me because I put on weight. And so we start attacking the system, tearing apart the weight. And we are focused and we are committed and nobody can peel us off this course. And, and it's all a lie. It's not real. The answers may be clear and oftentimes they're more nuanced than we want. But until God speaks to us and gives us his answer, we are liable to take our worst pains and turn them into fuel in the engine of our devastating destruction. I see this. It's like you're raised in a family where you didn't have a lot of money and so you're, you weren't happy and you grow up and you're going to be rich. Raised in a family where your dad was strict, so you're going to grow up and be permissive. Everybody's identifying, this is why my life is this way, and this is why it's not. You went through a crisis, and you reached out for help, and it didn't turn out, and so you've identified that as the problem. I want to suggest to you that the problem 
is not past. And the problem is not future. The problem is present. It's right now. The problem is your ability or inability to metabolize transformative truth and turn it into actions and grace that change your life. That's the problem. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's nothing you've gone through. There's no mistake you've made. There's no circumstance you're situated in that can prove more powerful than the God who said, let there be light and who speaks into your heart and says, let there be change. Nothing can compete with that power. But your mind can completely prevent it. Isn't that what he's saying? When in Peter he says, unto you therefore who believe, he is precious. But to those who do not believe, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient. Where is the preciousness of the opportunity? Unto you therefore who believe he is precious. The opportunity dressed in overalls or dressed in a, a Sunday meeting or in a conversation, however the answer may come, you've got to see that that opportunity doesn't activate until it encounters your faith. Just like that engine out in the parking lot, it may be 400 horsepower. It may have 30 gallons of fuel in it, but it is inert until a spark is sent into the chamber and those pistons start firing. That spark is a decision on your part to invest your faith in the Word of God. And then all this potential energy caged and packaged in the Word of God in the body of Christ, broom, it starts to roll over and turn and suddenly the, the chassis has power to its wheels and something is possible that was never possible before. But it's not possible. It's not like that's you know, what is a vehicle? What is a wagon? Let's put it this way. Which is, which is easier to pull? A wagon or an F-150? If you were to manually pull one or the other, which is easier? Hook a rope up to a wagon or hook a rope up to a F-150 and pull it up the hill. Which is easier to pull? The wagon. Is it because the wagon has more power inherent in its creation? No, the hardest thing for the flesh to pull is the unactivated promise of God. Does anybody hear what I'm saying? It's too heavy. <laughs> it's too massive. But the very problem that seems like the immovability when the flesh is tugging turns into the activated force that can move a house when the ignition of faith starts to spark that fuel of promise. Hallelujah. You know, what, what's scary about what we're talking about is that it strikes at the heart of our ability to assess and 
perceive reality, right? And it questions whether we can trust our senses. And the answer is we can't. I mean, we can't. If human senses were universally trustworthy, we wouldn't have diseases like we're describing. We wouldn't have manic depression and we wouldn't have paranoid schizophrenics and we wouldn't have bulimia and anorexia and, and the whole gambit of, of conditions. We wouldn't have that. We would just say, well, you know, get one of the five senses involved and problem solved. And so what we do is we categorize ourselves in labels like the sick and the well. And that way we can distance ourselves from the message screaming out to us from those around us. When, when suicide is the fastest growing epidemic, killing youth in America, literally, we, we just we say, well, they're sick. They're crazy. And we roll our eyes and we, we laugh and we smirk and we say, <laughs> bulimia <laughs> or whatever it is but we create these categories because we don't want this terrifying revelation to confront us that says you can't see it in yourself but you can see it in others you can't trust your own viewpoint alone we don't want to see that but then we go into the nursing homes and and we sit next to a a former judge's wife, county judge of McLennan County, and, and, and we, we look at her in her mini skirts and her lipstick smeared up into the cracks of her aging face and the powder caking and peeling off. Or we look across at the other lady who's let the blue dye spill onto her forehead, but she's still beautiful in her eyes. And, and the judge's wife is flirting with 17-year-olds, and, and she's not suffering any mental condition. Or we go to the, the wards in the hospital and we see those who are drunk out of their minds. And, or we see congressmen or, or uh, councilmen, city councilmen with a crack pipe in their right hand and stone drunk on the side of the road. And we say, well, he's sick. And they're sick. And he's sick. And he's sick. And that one's sick. And yeah, we get, let's get a new condition for that. Let's call this that. Everybody's sick. And the more we can name it, the more we can distance ourselves from it. Because we don't want to face that humanity is sick. Desperately wicked. Incurably sick. Because we don't want to come into an abiding relationship of dependence. Whereby we trust the input and reality of another more than ourselves. So we'll name all these diseases and give us books, bring out the Merck volumes and name all the disease, encyclopedia of known diseases. And we'll stand as the priests and say, well, he has that. And, from the and yet some of the greatest specialists, especially in the psychological field, would say that there's hardly a person on earth that could completely avoid these stigmas if put to the test under their standards.
they themselves could end up being the incurably sick in their categories. But it's all to say I don't need God and I don't need input and I can trust my worldview. And that's what the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ is here for. It's here to say we're not going to pretend any longer. We're going to trust the presence of God more than our own reality. And we're going to acknowledge with the wise man David, or Brother Howard may tell me, Asaph, who wrote much of the book of Psalms, that we were in the wrong place. We were making the wrong conclusions. We had almost envied the wicked. Our mouth had almost spoken a lie until we got back into this realm where our reality was adjusted and we knew, let God be true in every man a liar. Thank you, Jesus. This is the only place where we can know God, where we can know truth and be known of God. The truth. How you feel when you've worked out your narrative. That's not, that's not real peace. That's a superficial peace that heals the wound of God's people superficially. But it's not an answer. Amen. That's why we worship. That's why we praise. Some of you, you battle, you battle these things. It's not one, it's not two, and it's not a half a dozen. There's more than that. There are some who battle these thought patterns where your gifts have been turned against your own spiritual prosperity, your own spiritual blessings. You get in the vortex of your own reasoning and you can't get out. What's the answer? Are you going to die of spiritual bulimia? Are you going to starve yourself to death while living in a storehouse of plenty? There are people who come into meetings malnourished with their fingernails curling, with ribs showing, and they won't eat, spiritually speaking. But taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust the grace that he would give you through your brothers and sisters. I, I read this passage this morning and it hit me with such power. It's Psalms 118. There's just this one line. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. That almost subtly entails that his distress was a very small place. That small little cubicle of unbelief. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to, to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Where is God? There's a mirror that doesn't tell you a lie. It's the mirror of your brother's faces. No, we're not perfect. 
No, nobody's above mistakes. Don't look for perfection. Look for a made-up mind. Look for those who never quit in the effort to be more like Jesus. And the Lord is for you among those who help you. You know, I've said before, and I often, it often hits me, <clears throat> how I would be surprised over and over that my dad, who arguably knew more of the Word of God than uh, most of us, uh, wrote 200 and some titles on Christian living and theology and history and biblical things, <laughs> preached more messages than all of us combined, or most of us combined, it often would get me that I would go home to his sick bed or even when he wasn't sick, I'd call him up in Idaho and he and mom would be in the RV. Or I'd call him from New Zealand when we were on a mission trip and, and I would start telling him and he'd say, what did you preach? <laughs> it's hard to tell a preacher what you preached if you grew up under their preaching because you're afraid you're going to show them that you just preached what they always preached. <laughs> he'd say, what did you preach? And I'd say, well... God spoke to me from such and such a passage. I would start to share with him this encapsulated peanut of the bushel I dumped on the church. <clears throat> and he would be worshiping God and he and mom would be weeping and raising their hands and hallelujah. I mean, they were just beside themselves, totally weeping in, for them, themselves. Or I would, I would preach it in a nursing home or in the mission downtown and I would tell him, sit by his bedside and tell him, he'd say, what did you preach? I'd tell him, and he'd be worshiping God and, and, and he'd say, you need to minister this Sunday. You know, amen. And it often perplexed me, why, why is the person most full of God's word the hungriest and the most responsive to his word. How does that work? And I, I ask the same question. Why do the godliest saints praise the loudest? Why do the most suffering people testify the most? Why is that? What is it, Lord? You see, if you could change the way you respond, and I, I'm really not saying pop up and give us a testimony that solves the conviction today. I mean, you've got to get to the place where your wisdom or your learning or your position is not an interference to your grace, to God's answer to your prayer. You've got to be able to get a phone call and sit on the side of your bed and weep though you know it better than the person telling you. You've got to be able to treat the movement of God's Spirit, the whisper of His Word, like it was your life. Some of you think you can't change your, your mully-grubbing attitudes and your, your woe-is-me lifestyle and your depressed this and that. You're just self-absorbed. You're just self-absorbed. And there's a profound word that goes something like this. Get a life. 
And I don't know how the world means that, but I mean it like this. Do something for somebody else and reach back to God to get the help to do it. Forget about yourself. Get a life. He came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. So I think it's okay for us to say, get a life. Somebody says to me recently, you know, I, I thought I had the victory over this. You did have the victory over it. Can I give you a scenario? I have family who have struggled with addiction. Who, after they left God, struggled with addiction. And I spent years of my life ministering to addicts all over Texas, here in Waco, in the prisons. I have a little bit of experience with an addict. And some of you are just addicts. You're addicts drunk on your own self-pity. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that to give you a strategy for how to break your addiction. Treat it like alcoholism. Don't take a sip. Are you going to overcome alcoholism by weaning and limiting your whiskey intake? As soon as you touch your lips to that glass, you have fallen off the wagon. You're back where you started. You've got to come to a place where you categorically preclude it. The problem is your whiskey that's killing you, that's eating out your spiritual liver, you think it's reality. You think it's the truth. So you don't treat it as a deadly poison that it in fact is. Let me paint a picture for you, okay? Somebody is, uh, <clears throat> somebody, nobody has a perfect life. Everybody's got their battles. Everybody's got threats. Everybody's got memories and past. Everybody's got fears in the future. Everybody's got jerk family members. Not me, but everybody else has got crazy family members. Everybody's got a circumstance outside their control, right? But they're living in victory. They've got the joy of the Lord. And, and then all of a sudden they take a, uh, uh, they take a shot of heroin in their arm. Or they snort cocaine or they, they take a shot of whiskey or, 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 uh, or they, they do crystal meth. All right, I want you to picture somebody working out in their garden, pruning their fruit trees. All of their circumstances, they're aware of them. They've got a victory. And all of a sudden, they take some crystal meth and they go, it's going to kill me. I can see it. Oh, this is what happens. I've seen it. Do you see it? Do you see it behind that bush? I see the motion right over there. And you say, well, has this person's circumstance changed or has their perspective changed? Well, some of you shoot self-pity like heroin. Some of you snort self-pity like cocaine. Some of you puff on your crystal meth of depression. It's an addiction. It's an addiction. It's a narrative that makes you feel like you're not responsible. And life may be worse, but I'm not responsible. And I really feel sorry for myself. And if I do a little more of this, I bet somebody else could feel sorry for me. So your compulsion is, i got to show them how miserable I am. you got to break the addiction. Am I being too brutal? Maybe. But that's what it takes when you're trying to overcome an addiction, the truth. you got to break the addiction. you got to say, the Lord says in his word, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I have got to change the habits of my mind. I've got to get back to new and I'm going to be transformed. The Lord says in his word, bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. He's either mocking me because I can't do that or I can do it. And I've just never done it with faith. So it seems impossible and that just shows what's missing my faith. God, I'm putting the key in and I'm putting the spark in the engine of the body of Christ that is for me, not against me. You love me. You died for me. You brought grace into my life. You gave me hope. You surrounded me with life. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God's not the one starving you. He's laid a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Rebuke that spiritual bulimia. Put the cup to your mouth and drink deep of the presence of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody praise God. Somebody break out of that mindset that you're in. Tell Him you believe it. Tell Him you can change. Tell Him it's here right now. You can get it. Amen. Let God be true and every man a liar. There are people sitting in this room who called me, who I helped overcome their mental habits. They called me for months telling me about their fears, telling me about their dreams, telling me about the threats. And It doesn't mean it's not real. To say something is in the mind is not to say it's not real. It's to say it's the most real, dangerous, deadly thing in human experience. And for months, they trusted the input of someone not in their condition. And one step at a time, God restored. God healed. Amen. And God didn't just get them back to new. He took them to a brand new place. Thank you, Jesus. Simeon, you know that's his story. But he's not the only one. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God is for me among those who help me. God is for me among those who help me. God is for me among those who help me. Do you want to change? Pray that with faith. God, you're for me among those who help me.